Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Chip Chapman. Chip is a retired Major General of the British military. He's fought in the Falklands War, worked as the Head of Counterterrorism for the British Ministry of Defence, and served as the Senior British Military Advisor to the US Central Command. Chip has an excellent book that details his military experiences called Notes from a Small Military, and I'll put a link to the book in the show notes so that listeners can find out more. I'm excited to have a chance to discuss the conflict in Ukraine with Chip on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me today, Chip. You're welcome, Jessica. Before we discuss the current situation, I want to back up a bit to just after the 24th of February this year, when there was the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, how were you evaluating and understanding what was going on in terms of Russian strategy and military performance? Let me just back up even more to begin with, Jessica, before I answer the question, because I actually have been to Russia, worked with the Russian Airborne and had my Russian Airborne wings. Uh, which was not that long after the Cold War ended and the Berlin Wall collapsed and all that. It was 1993. And unless you were in those days, and I think this is still the case, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, Russia is a pretty poor place. Mm. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, we must have been kidding ourselves that Russia were a threat to us, you know, intent, capability and opportunity in in how we define the threat, uh, because it was a really backward state. So you'd have expected in the time since Putin's been in power, particularly Putin 3.0 and 4.0, that the modernization program of the Russians had taken them to a place where they were a coherent military force again. But like everything, wars are fought for political objectives. And the one thing that I always used to keep in the back of my notebooks was a quote from Alan Brooke, who was the chief of the Imperial General Staff and the key advisor to Churchill, and actually something that I taught Jim Mattis in uh, CENTCOM, and he'd never heard it before, Hmm. which is determine the aim, which is political, to derive from that aim a series of objectives to be achieved, to assess those objectives as to the requirements they create and the preconditions which the achievement of each is likely to necessitate, to measure available and potential resources against the requirements, and to derive from that process a coherent pattern of priorities and a rational course of action, essentially the relationship between ends, ways and means. And the Russians did none of that. And they had three major miscalculations prior to the war. The first one was the strength of the Russian armed forces. The second one was a complete misunderstanding of both Ukraine as a nation and the Ukrainian military and will to fight. And the third one was to believe that NATO and the political West, if there is such a thing, that the political West given that we'd come out of Afghanistan last August, was kind of finished as an entity which could confront Russia. And they believed, I think, that with the uh, their experience in the 1956 intervention in Hungary and the 1968 intervention in Czechoslovakia, Putin believed that uh, he would win and win quickly. That is, that he would knock over the political policy of Ukraine uh, significantly early by D plus three, D plus four. Another 
guy I used to work with was uh, Mark Milley, the current chairman of the American Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he wrote something profound the day he became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is five myths we need to let go. The first one, which we're seeing at the moment, is wars will be short. They might not be. The second myth which you need to let go, and this again is difficult for the Russians at the moment, is you can win wars from afar just by dropping ordnance. You can't. And Russia's ability, of course, to destroy is far greater than their ability to capture, hold, occupy and govern. So they can level things to the ground, but that is far more difficult to do the other things that I mentioned. Uh, and that will strain them in the in the future because their modernized force is not as modernized as I, I think they think it is. And currently at the moment, they have a significant shortage of dismounts, infantry, and a lot of shadow sh soldiers or ghost soldiers in the same way that the Afghan National Army had. The third and fourth things from Mark Milley, which are pertinent here, is armies are easy to create, a myth, they are not. And the one which is really pertinent in this miscalculation from Putin's perspective is that armies fight wars. They don't. Nations fight wars. And Ukraine had been energized to a sense of its nationhood from both 2014 and from the original invasion scare of this current round, which, of course, was from uh, April 2021, to have enough time to do something about any, any Russian invasion. So a series of miscalculations there. If you look at the 70 or 71 insurgencies which have taken place from 1945 to 2010, there is no insurgency that has ever failed when the, uh, the country has had external backing and potentially a safe haven. Both of those really pertain to Ukraine at the moment in terms of the training of forces um, overseas and that significant support from the political West as I see it at the moment. That's so interesting. And I guess the only thing is there is that it can take time, right? Like the insurgency might not fail, but it might take some time for that force with the greater military capability to actually realise that they can't win. I think that's interesting in terms of what you just said, Jessica, because it plays back into the sort of Tolstoy la line that the two greatest warriors are time and patience. Now, that is an interesting one in terms of can the political West sustain what they are doing at the moment? Mm -hmm. We've seen the Ukrainians fighting very fiercely. And as you mentioned, nations fight wars. I really liked how you said that. And that makes a lot of sense to me when we're looking at the current conflict in that you could really feel that sense of nationhood also represented toward the outside world by President Zelensky in quite, you know, sort of accessible way. How have you been observing the Ukrainian side? Well, I think at the, the first thing you have to say is at the uh, strategic level, I think Zelensky has been the man of the decade so far. Rather like Churchill, he's mobilised the English language or Ukrainian language and sent it into battle in the way that he communicates with both the domestic and the international audience. Certainly his communication when he spoke to the British Parliament, you know, referenced quotes to Churchill and Shakespeare. And it was, you know, it was inspiring sort of stuff. Having a wartime leader like Zelensky is important. But of course, if you look at operations of war, certainly in my day, there were only three major operations of war, offense, defense, and delay operations, and everything in between is the linking stuff, which is the transitional phases of war. Uh, the 
Ukrainians have fought very clever series of defense and delay battles with localized counterattacks when they need to be taken. And I think that you saw that very early on. I think it will look back, uh, should they win this, and I hope they do, that the counterattack and making sure the Russians couldn't take Kostomel airfield just to the north of Kiev was really, really important because that would have enabled a link-up operation between the Grand Forces and those who'd taken the airport and they could have brought a load of fuel in through that route and Kiev might have been finished, which is the war might have been finished on the basis that a capital city in Klaasvitsian terms is often a central gravity. And like all these things, that translates into the way that the military have fought in that leadership matters and training and discipline matters. The mission command type of environment where you tell someone what to do and not how to do it in the Ukrainians and the way they've been schooled really since the 2014 invasion by the sort of training programs has shown that power of, of leadership and how generalship and leadership also matters throughout. They've also been clever, I think, in that you know, the Ukrainians will always surprise you by their ingenuity of being able to sort of think through problems of how they can use technology to their advantage outside of the normal equipment codes that we generally use, particularly how they've used that sort of surveillance in terms of uh, getting drones up in the air and queuing the sensor to shoot at things with artillery and things like that. But even though they're under pressure in the Donbass at the moment, I'd also quote another Churchillian thing that success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts, but they do need sustainable replenished ammunition, weapons and sound logistics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I feel as though I'm certainly watching quite nervously right now what's happening in the Donbass and wondering, you know, how is this going to end? What is the trajectory going to be? How do you see this playing out? I mean, do you think that Russia will ultimately succeed to take full control of the Donbass and then say, okay, we're satisfied with that. Now we'd like a peace agreement and we'd like to take that sort of 20% chunk of Ukrainian territory or will Ukraine manage to stop them from taking the hold of Donbass? What do you see happening? It's a great question. And the first thing I always say to all these uh, sort of questions is that tactical battles are sequenced to achieve operational objectives in support of strategic ends. And everyone keeps using the word strategic too, too frequently when what we're really seeing is tactical battles, which will be sequenced for certain things. So let me give you an illustration. So really for the last two weeks, three weeks probably, everyone's been focused on Severodonetsk. Severodonetsk is kind of important by itself, but it is not strategic. Of course, it is control of, for example, Dolnia and Bakut, far to the east of that, which will aid in the encirclement of Severodonetsk, cut off Lachansk on the uh, western bank and aid in the capture of uh, Slovyansk. So all that is where you look at the operational level playing into the strategic level. So I think they will take Luhansk. Uh, if they take Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, the real answer is it depends if the original maximalist objectives of Russia are now those minimalist objectives. So is Putin content with the Donbass control of the corridor to the Crimea? And does the success in the Donbass of capturing Luhansk and Donetsk mean that he will impose a unilateral ceasefire and then say, you have to negotiate with me. Now, there is also, of course, a spectrum from 
a truce through a ceasefire to potentially an armistice and then a peace peace agreement. They are all slightly different things. Mm-hmm. Even if Russia does take full control of the Donbass and then stops at that stage, it's probably just a matter of time before there's a second go at trying to actually gain full control over the Ukrainian territory. So I can understand that that would be very unpalatable, not only to Zelensky, but also to the Ukrainian populations, which from what I understand, talking to people within Ukraine, they're definitely not at all conducive to the idea that there might be some kind of formal agreement where the Donbass region is given over to Russian control. I think that, again, I always say three things here. Leaders may change. Putin won't be there forever. He might go sooner than we think. Vital interests rarely change, and geography never changes. So there will always be some sort of border between Russia and Ukraine, assuming there is an independent sovereign Ukraine still. And it's that thing, again, from history, that with Ukraine, Russia is an empire. Without Ukraine, Russia is merely a country. And I think that Putin does see Ukraine as part of Mother Russia. And that's why I just can't see him stopping. And of course, if he goes, if you still have people who are sort of Putanskis or Putinesties or whatever they might be, then you will be back in the same uh, conundrum. Because as I said, that comes into how do Russia's vital interests change? And unless you had some sort of detente between the West and Russia, they just won't change their attitude at the moment, I think. I guess the only thing that could factor into that is if there are really some kind of military losses for Russia as Western military equipment flows more into Ukraine. Or sometimes I wonder whether at some stage there would be a sort of a tipping point Uh, Is there a silent mobilisation going on at the moment in terms of the conscripts can't be used, but they've sort of altered the age for contractors to be used? Or is Putin at the moment trying to seed the ground uh, of the Russian people for a wider mobilisation? So I think that is one of the things to look for in the future, because you can only really escalate in seven ways. And I've used these a lot in various things. Weapons, objectives targets, rhetoric, domains, cyber and space, geography, expand the theatre of war, or mobilisation. They're the only ways that you can escalate uh, in this war. I hope we don't see an escalation in weapons to chemical weapons or nuclear weapons, but you know that's thinking of Putin as a rational man, whereas war itself is not a rational act, we would always argue. And it's interesting you mentioned the sort of that information dimension, because that's obviously been really important as we've been looking at this conflict. And again, you can see that in terms of some of the vulnerabilities of the Russians, you know, the mobile phones which people took to battle with them. Don't think a lot of modern youth understand those vulnerabilities if they take those sorts of systems into a war. So that elect- electronic warfare signature of some of these things is probably one of those sort of lessons that will be coming out for all Western militaries in the future about what do you do about reducing your electronic signature and you're making sure that there are no cell phones on the battlefield Uh, because in any war where you take digital devices to war with you these days, you're going to be killed. Yeah, and we're definitely fighting in a very different world, I can imagine, to the one that you were fighting in in the Falklands where really none of that, you know, individual access to those types of technologies 
was available. And I think this is, this is again, this is probably, it's 40 years that the Falklands War finished, um, you know, and having fought in that, the Falklands was probably one of the last analogue wars. This is a digital war and a technological war. Now, ultimately, of course, the character of war and the nature of war, or the nature of war doesn't change. It still is a visceral thing where people have to do dirty things at the front line and lots of people get killed, as we as we see. I know that you also have experience sort of applying the lessons that you've learned in your time in the military to other domains. And I'm very curious to understand, like, what are some key lessons that you learned about leadership being in the military that you feel are also more broadly applicable? Well, I look at things in four ways. There's an organisational part, a procedural part, a technical part and a human part. And one of the things which is absolutely evident to me with the pandemic is if you've got good people and bad process, bad process wins nine times out of ten. So you absolutely need to know how your processes work. But you can never really define leadership, but you know bad leadership when you see it. You can never over-communicate. Accuracy, brevity, clarity is the way we were taught ABC. I think I was really fortunate in that motivation means a lot to people. And that's why the Ukrainians will fight to the death in many cases, because there's both intrinsic motivation, the love of either your country or doing your job, and extrinsic motivation, factors which might motivate you, including you know things like promotion or money and all those sorts of things. And I loved every day that I was doing my job. And if you love what you're doing, then you hope you can translate that to other people. And as long as you're not being an then you're probably going to get people to follow you. So we looked at things in terms of team, task and the individual. And if they're all aligned, the mission is the most important thing to us in the military, you know, completing the task, but bring the individual along. Because at the end of the day, the thing that makes success is camaraderie and cohesion. That was really the decisive thing in the Falklands and most wars. Better weapons and better equipment help you, but it's that motivation to succeed that really gets you where you want to be. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And the fact that if you love what you do, people will sense that and naturally follow you. Thank you, Chip. I really appreciate it. I loved hearing your insights today. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Jessica. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.